Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Phil Nadell, Phil Nadell on the RiderFlex uh, podcast. Uh, um, hey, tell me about your personal life real quick. Uh, you, you know, family, yeah. family, mom, dad, siblings. I want to know some of that before we get into all the startup and investing stuff. You got it. Sure. So um, I come from a very entrepreneurial family. Um, I, I learned I learned how to be an entrepreneur, uh, how to be a, a startup founder from my dad. Um, I graduated from uh, college and went right into starting my own business. And he was my, my mentor from a very early age. And we became business partners uh, uh, when I was at an early age, which was oh. absolutely the best experience I could have hoped for. Um, so I learned a lot from him and then I went out and did a bunch of my own uh, startups after that. Uh, I have I have two siblings, um, both younger, younger sister, younger brother, um, and uh, very close with both of them. Um, my brother is an attorney, uh, but but I still love him. And uh, <laughs> uh, and my sister is uh, is just the best. She's a former uh, startup founder in the travel business, uh, and now she's a full time mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and crushing it. Uh, I, I've been married. I married my high school sweetheart. Um, oh. yep. Yep. And, uh, she, she's the only one dumb enough to have me. And, uh, she, and we've been married now almost, it'll be uh, 32 years next month. Ooh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Long time. And uh, we have two uh, terrific kids. My older, we have two sons. My older son just got married last Sunday. Oh, uh, Yep. So uh, it turned out uh, to be, it was a beautiful wedding, turned out nice. to be a, a super spreader event, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, many, many guests uh, uh, have COVID from that event. So uh, we're, we're very sorry. Don't blame me. It's not my fault. <laughs> but it was a great wedding. So and my and uh, my younger son recently graduated from, from college. Uh, he's a documentary filmmaker in Brooklyn. Oh. Um, so yeah, so great kids, great family life. Um, you know, we're very, very close. Most of the family lives here in South Florida where I am. And, uh, aside from my brother, who's, uh, who's the black sheep. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. So, uh, happy to answer, uh, any, any questions about my, my family though. Well, you're, uh, first of all, you're a humble guy. Cause you graduated from Wharton and you didn't mention the school. Anytime somebody goes to a great school that's tough to get into and hard to graduate from, 
a lot, I find a lot of times that they are very humble, like they'll, they'll, they won't brag about it or, or kind of highlight it. And you didn't mention school. So that tells me a little bit about your character. right? Well, away. You, you know what? I think I think that their admissions criteria has gotten a lot stricter since <laughs> I went. It must. That, <laughs> I think that must be it, because uh, I don't know how I got in there. <laughs> Were you uh, in high school? Were you uh, a little wild? Were you super conservative? Were you at the library every day? Were you getting? Were you, was your dad getting a call from the sheriff's office? I mean, give, give me something there. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. I would say uh, I, I, no. I was not uh, wild. I was um, pretty, pretty much under control. And I and I was the the one in my. We had. I went to a small private school, and and it was mm. so it was a relatively small class. There were. 84 of us in my graduating class. And I was the one who was always coming up with uh, entrepreneurial ideas because, well, uh, I was, uh, for a couple of years, I was president of the, of the class and, and, the, uh, and one of my responsibilities was to raise money to put on prom. Oh. And I, and, and, and I, I took that very seriously and, uh, and needed to raise a lot of money to put on prom. And so uh, we were constantly trying new uh, businesses, you know, at school, trying to sell this and that to raise money for our class for, uh, for oh. prom. So that was the, that was the, uh, the guy I was. Uh, aside from doing my fair amount of studying uh, that was necessary, I, uh, I was always pursuing uh, different, different ventures to raise money. You mentioned your dad was a lifelong entrepreneur. What kind of, give me a little uh, color around that. Uh, what kind of businesses, different things? Yeah, had he had a very, very colorful uh, business background. So he was, uh, at, I think he was 25 years old when he became the youngest member of uh, the New York Stock Exchange. Um, wow. Started his own um, firm when he was 25 or 26 in New York. Um, uh, did, like a like a like a, a venture fund, like a venture fund, investment, or investment banking, okay. uh, and brokerage, uh, okay. firm, which he did okay. for several years. Then he went into the travel business, became uh, ended up becoming the uh, the largest wholesale travel company in the country. Mm. Um, this was before the government uh, deregulated the airlines, so there he was in an, an interesting niche of the travel business. Okay. Um, and then, uh, he and I went into the publishing business together for several years, wow. uh, which, which morphed, it, this is offline publishing because this was pre-internet, but it morphed into, uh, some online, uh, stuff as well, uh, as well as, um, in addition to publishing merchandise sales and became, a, a, we were doing about 130 million in revenue at the time we sold the company. Mm. Um, and, um. And then he and I uh, went into the finance business uh, together, uh, which is uh, my, my dad's been gone now for 16 years. He passed away 16 years ago, but I still have the finance company uh, mm. that we started together. And, and that was in the asset based uh, financing uh, sector. So um, so he, he he was the kind of guy who um, could become very quickly the master uh, uh, of any business. It, mm. He, he just dove in and, and became an expert in a business very, very quickly. And it, it's a trait that, uh, that I try to emulate. It's difficult. He <laughs> just, and, 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 you know, much easier today with, with the internet, of course. But back in the day when he was first starting businesses, to become an expert uh, quickly was, was more challenging. 
and mm-hmm. he was he was very good at that. And so uh, anyway, that's a little bit about his. Uh, did you guys, uh, did you guys get along? All I mean, I'm sure there was a few times where you got into it, right? There had to be a few times where you had had some battles. Yeah, there were probably a few, but um, for the most part, uh, we were of the same mind. Um, fortunately, we were, we were, uh, it was a great business partnership. And as I said, I learned an awful lot from him. Um, I, you know, I, I don't emulate him in every single way, uh, um, but he, uh, he, he taught me a lot. And uh, yeah, I think for the most part, we saw eye to eye. Your mom's still alive? She is, thank God, doing great. Yeah, yeah, she Jeez. lives right here in uh, where I am in Boca Raton, Florida. So we're very close, get to see each other all the time. And uh, yeah, she's doing great. What's your temperature today? By the way, we're, we're recording this on December 14th, 2021. What's your temperature down there in Boca today? Hold on. It <laughs> is 83. Oh, man, you got it rough today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it dipped down a little bit overnight. It got into the high 70s last night. So, you know, we had to bundle up. Do you uh, stay down there in July and August or do you go north somewhere? Um, well, for the last few years, we've stayed down here because of COVID. But, uh, uh, yeah. you know, typically we try to get away a little bit. Um, my mm-hmm. mom goes away for the summer to Cape Cod. We try to spend some time up there and visit her and and uh sometimes we'll get up to north carolina but uh but for the most part this is home base the reason i ask that is because i'm, I'm a huge fan of south florida in the winter time but uh july and august is a little little muggy <laughs> you know pe- people say that where are you located i'm in colorado oh well colorado is nice and, uh yeah but i gotta say that you know people in new york or the Northeast, let's say, who who say that it's hot and muggy here in the summer, it's not. It's not much better in the Northeast. Colorado's much better. Yes, true. That's much true. better. By the Northeast, it's not a big. I don't think there's a big difference. That's a good point. I'm pretty spoiled living in Colorado right now. Colorado's great. There's, there's no humidity, right? Yeah, for sure. And you know what I always say is, thank God for air conditioning. Uh, you know, we have a lot of humidity, but we have air conditioning too, so we're all good. It's all good. Uh, well, I appreciate you sh- sharing some of that personal background. Thank you. Um, okay, let's get into the business, man. I, I mean, you had a great career. You've bought and sold, invested. I mean, hell, we could probably talk four hours on all the different things you've done. Um, what about Forefront Ventures, though? Uh, Forefront Venture Partners, eight years. Is that your primary business? I know you got several things going on. Is Forefront Venture Partners the primary focus right Absolutely. now? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's my full-time okay. 100% uh, uh, business. Dedicated. I'm dedicated uh, to that. And, um, yeah, it's been more than eight years now. We have the, the Forefront uh, Venture Partners Syndicate. And then mm-hmm. uh, earlier this year, we introduced a, a rolling fund on AngelList. So we have two, two investment vehicles. Give us the overview. Give us the elevator pitch. It's so funny, right? You 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 have people give you the pitch all day long, right? I mean, that's what you do for a living is listen yeah. to people and decide whether or not to invest. But give us the pitch. Forefront Venture Partners. And by the way, for the listeners real quick, uh, before Phil goes over it, it's ForefrontVP.com. Uh, ForefrontVP.com. And you can also find Phil Nadell on LinkedIn, of course, as well, where he's got like, 25,000 followers and you can connect with him there, but give us the overview. If you don't mind my friend, go for it. 
Yeah, so um, as I said, we have two investment vehicles. So Forefront Venture Partners Syndicate is one of the largest and, and most successful syndicates on, on AngelList, one of the oldest ones. Um, and we invest in, in uh, post-revenue seed, mostly in seed and Series A startups. Um, we look for companies that are, uh, that are really solving a big pain point uh, in, in a unique or differentiated way and are focused on a large addressable market, only post-revenue companies. And the reason why, you know, there's a look, there's a lot of syndicates out there and a lot of money floating around, but the reason why a lot of startups want us on their cap table and want us as investors is that our syndicate brings a lot of value beyond capital. And what I mean by that is primarily that's with, start, with uh, customer referrals. So when we invest in a company, our syndicate investors, even if they put five, ten, twenty thousand dollars in, they're going to do everything they can to help that company succeed. They're going to refer customers to them. They're going to help them with talent acquisition. If they have meaningful uh, background or experience, they'll give them some strategic guidance. They can help with other additional fundraising. All of these things, nice. and that is in addition to the capital that we provide. So we look for opportunities to invest in companies where we think we can help a lot. We only invest in about 10 or 12 companies a year. We're very, very selective. We do much more due diligence than any other investor at this stage that, that I know of. Uh, so we're very careful. And um, we look for those opportunities where we think our syndicate members can add that kind of value. Any specific so that's industry? The, that's the, Okay. No, no, I'm glad you asked that. I forgot to mention, we, we are generally, we're industry agnostic. Okay. But having said that, we focus, we focus on capital efficient companies. So for example, we're not going to invest in biotech. It's not capital efficient. They have to raise you know, hundreds of millions of dollars usually. We're not going to invest in companies that are building out like brick and mortar locations. Again, not capital efficient. So we look for capital efficiency, but you know, we do a lot of SaaS companies. We certainly uh, have our share of direct-to-consumer uh, companies. So a mixture of B2B, B2C, um, we've really done it all. We have um, close to 90 companies in our portfolio now. And, um, you know, by looking through our portfolio, uh, founders can get a pretty good sense of, of what we like. But it's a, real, it's a real mixture. But the common element is capital efficiency. And again, you know, post-revenue, solving a big, a big pain point. Okay, current 90 companies uh, in the portfolio now. How many have exited or gone through a transaction o o over the you know history of the? A lot time? of them. A lot. We're very fortunate. In fact, uh, just a few days ago, um, one of our portfolio companies called Grove Collaborative uh, just announced a merger with a SPAC, uh, Richard Branson's SPAC. So they'll mm. be going public. So nice. that's very that's very exciting. But in addition to that, we've had. Um, I don't know the number offhand, but at least a dozen acquisitions. Nice. We've had some really, really good outcomes. And okay. what we pride ourselves on is we have fewer strikeouts than, than most early stage investors. And the reason for that is that, again, we're focused on post-revenue companies. And that, we think, will reduce the risk a little bit. Uh, and we do a lot of due diligence, very selective. So we're... 
because we're focused on post-revenue, we're going to have perhaps fewer of those grand slams, mm. right? But we're going to have fewer strikeouts. Okay. We have our share of home runs and grand, grand slams, like Grove Collaborative, <laughs> but we're probably going to have fewer. If, if Mark Zuckerberg had come to me uh, pre-revenue with Facebook, now Meta, we would have said no out mm. of hand because mm. Mark, maybe we love the idea, Mark, but it's pre-revenue. We don't do pre-revenue. Does so it have to be... Does it have to be a revenue of a certain number? Are you looking for one, two million? No, is there, 20, is there any... a month, really minimal. We like to, and the reason why we have that is we like to see some early indication of product market fit, right? Okay. Okay. And before a company earns revenue, it's all speculative. Everything mm. they're planning and everything mm. that they're projecting, it's all speculation. Mm. And until someone writes a check or pays money for that product, until a third party does that, there's no indication of product market fit yet. Okay. Okay. So are, we like, are to, you, see, we like okay. to see that. So, but it's a minimal threshold. Are you comfortable being the first investor with a with a seed round, or do you prefer to see uh, you know, do you want to be the second or third investor, or does that matter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, we'll we'll do either. We'll we mostly uh, do not lead rounds, but occasionally we do. Uh, if there's a high level of conviction and it's a small enough round, we'll lead the round. Mm-hmm. Um, our typical investment's a half a million to a million. So it's not like we're going to lead a round of $10 million. It's not appropriate. Um, but if it's a couple million dollar round, we can we can lead that. Uh, are you, but we, we don't mind being first check-in. Are you looking for a certain percentage of the cap table? Do you... No. Do you want to do you want to be in control? Do you want 15%? Right? Is that that's a little gray too, it just depends on the deal. No, it doesn't. We're more focused on the valuation than the percentage ownership. So okay. if the we, you know, if the and, and valuations have, have gone crazy, you know, the last couple of years, but if the valuation is reasonable uh relative to the market, then we're okay with it. It doesn't matter what percentage ownership we have. What about this? What what if you get a company in front of you that uh, let's let's say they're doing two million in revenue and they could be kicking off twenty percent on the bottom line on profit, but they've been running it as a lifestyle business, so they're shoving a bunch of shit through the company, a bunch of expenses. They're they're paying out some bonuses at the end of the year because they want the company to break even. They're forcing the company to break even, so they're not showing you. They can't hand you some financials with twenty percent you know, net profit the last three years. Do you care about that? Do you want them to have done the pivot into showing profit? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, I have, I have two conflicting thoughts on that. Number one, we don't require profitability at all. I mean, okay. most of, almost every company we invest in is not profitable. Okay. Um, and that's because they're, they're really focused more on growth than profitability. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that's, the answer in one part but the other thing you said was that they're focused on being a lifestyle business and they're putting a bunch of garbage through you know the income statement to get down to 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 break even Mm -hmm. that that won't work for us at least on a going forward basis right they right right. they would have to clean that up and also not they have to convince us that they they have a startup mentality and that they can be focused on growth and not profitability so much. I mean, profitability, mm. yes, ultimately, but not at the cost of, of growth. They've got to be able to grow the company. And if they're focused on being a lifestyle business, because that's the way they've been doing it for the last six, eight, 10 years, 
that's probably not a good fit for us. Isn't it interesting, as I talk to a bunch of business owners and founders, and we've had a ton of people on the podcast, and I just know a bunch of people in my network, uh, it is fascinating to, to watch the different mindset between the lifestyle business owner, right? They're, they're running a nice little family business. It's been that way for 20 years. Yeah. The family's paying themselves 200 grand a year in salary. It's kicking off another 10% on the bottom line, maybe 5% because they're forcing it down maybe to closer to break even. And they're perfectly fine with that. And they, yeah. And, it, and there's it, nothing wrong with that. Look, there's nothing right. The startup, <laughs> the startup life, the, the fast growth company life is definitely not for everyone. Agreed. It's high, it's high stress. And it, you're also by taking on investors, you're answering to other people. And, you know, you, there are a lot of downsides to it. And I don't recommend it for everyone. Uh, for the right people, it's great. But lifestyle businesses are, can be a great way to go for sure. It can be. And it is a completely different lifestyle. If you decide to if you decide to pivot from lifestyle to growth company for investors, it, it's, it's a completely different life and a different stress level. Whiplash. All- That's whiplash. <laughs> you better be ready for that. Right. Uh, let me ask you this. You, you see a lot of pitches. Okay. So you said about 12 a year. How many are you turning down? A hundred, 200? What, yeah. What's the, I'm just curious. A week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, we, we honestly, we see, um, between 50 and 100 a week. Wow. Uh, yeah, wow. the deal flow has um, has really taken off over the last few years. I mean, it's... Wow. It, 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 and, and frankly, you know, it's a good thing that we have a criterion like post-revenue only because that helps to mm. reduce the number significantly mm. uh, that, we, mm. that we take seriously. But, 50, you know, yeah. we have, we have a, a funnel in place. And so the top of the funnel, we get 50, 100... Uh, on average a week and we'll narrow that down and and you know end up doing maybe one a month um and uh, yeah and 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 we're not in we feel no pressure to invest so if we don't do uh if we don't invest in the company for a few months that's fine too uh it's okay we're we're very patient investors we're going to wait for the right opportunities and wait for those real gems to come along because we're putting our name and reputation on the line every time we invest. Give me an example. Let, let's say I'm a, I'm an aspiring entrepreneur. I got an idea. I want to get my pitch deck over to feel. Um, what are some automatic uh, kickouts, you know, some automatic rejection besides the, the revenue piece? What are yeah. other things where you're just automatically, okay, nope, 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 nope. Yeah. Give me some yeah. Well, <laughs> so they're they're firstly if if they're not addressing a, a large market large enough market okay. you know you mentioned like lifestyle businesses some lifestyle businesses are very niche focused you know mm-hmm. if this is a niche focused business it's probably not going to you know be a good fit for us it, if they're not addressing the problem in in a uh, differentiated way in other words if there's a lot of competition that's doing something very very similar. And mm-hmm. I can't determine what the differentiation is or why they're better. That's mm-hmm. an obvious kick out, you know, mm-hmm. that's like a me too kind of a product. And they, they've got to be doing something much better in order to break into, uh, you know, a competitive environment. So, uh, so, so that's really important. They've got to be doing, doing something better. Okay. The, the okay. founders um, have, have got to have some relevant experience 
hopefully they've lived the pain point that they're trying to solve. Mm. You know, like they've, they've personally experienced that. Um, and if they, if they have a founding team, they should really try to have most or all of the disciplines covered, the important ones, okay. technical, sales, marketing, finance, you know, all of the, the thing. Now, if we are fine investing in solo founded companies, you know, single founder, but they have to then have a team where those other areas are covered. So a lot of times we'll see a solo founder who has the technical background and they have developed a fantastic product, but they don't yet have anyone on the team who can help mm. with selling it. Mm. And you can have the best product in the world, but if no one knows about it. If you're not selling it, that's, <laughs> that's not going to work. So we uh. want to see that, that they, that they have that covered. And then another real uh, a turnoff I would say is when, when founders or companies in general don't know their their KPIs, right? You've mm. got to know those performance indicators. If I ask you a question like, what is your customer acquisition cost? Or, or a simple question, what are your margins? You know, you better know those and don't say, I'm going to check with my CFO and we'll get back to you. If you're the CEO, you better know the basics at least. Mm, uh, good. And and so I get I get turned off when you know, when founders don't know that information, the, the basic KPIs that are critical, critical to managing and, and growing their businesses. Great advice, Phil. What about this? What about the material that's sent over to you? Do you have like a portal? Do you have like a, a process where you're like, okay, send your pitch deck here and it has to be this many pages or what's the, what kind of material, tangible thing do you want in front of you? What do you, what do you want to see? Yeah, we like to start with a pitch deck. Um, it, we don't care how many pages, that's not important, but the pitch deck should, it should basically explain to us, you know, problem, solution, size of market, team, differentiation, you know, competition, differentiation, those types of things. So what problem are you solving? How are you solving it? You know, why are you the right team to solve it? Mm. How are you, what's the competitive landscape like? How are you different? And then some of the KPIs, high level KPIs, you know, how much revenue you're generating, what kind of margins, you know, what's the CAC recovery? How long does it take to recover your customer acquisition cost? Those kinds of things, high level, enough to, to get us interested in wanting to have a meeting. Okay. And do you want to, do you want a specific breakout of, Hey, look, we want 500,000. And if you give it to us, this is how we'll use it. Or that comes in the second or third meeting. Most of the decks we see include like a use of proceeds slide. So they say, here's how we're going to use the money. Um, mm -hmm. It's not critical, but they better know that on the first call if it's not in there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that, so we need to know that it doesn't have to be in the initial deck. Um, after we have a call, uh, assuming it leads, the deck leads us to want to have a call, we have a call. Oftentimes what we'll request next, depending on the type of business, but we look for detailed financial projections and typically, especially B2B companies, a sales pipeline. Mm -hmm. So detailed financial projections. I, I want to just spend a moment about talking about that because okay. Okay. You know, a, lot of, a lot of founders say, well, you know, financial projections are always wrong. Why do you care about them, right? Be, it's not that we're going to hold you to those projections. It's not that we think they're going to be right. We know they're not going to be right. The reason we look at financial projections and we want detail 
is that we like to see what the what the thinking is. We like to understand their basis, mm -hmm. their rationale for making these projections. If their rationale is crazy, right? If they're if they're showing growth that doesn't correspond to anything rational or isn't tied to you know some metrics like increasing the number of salespeople or sp spending more on, on marketing, whatever it may be. If there's not a, a rational basis for their projections, that's not that's not a good look. That's not mm -hmm. going to appeal to us. So we want to make sure that the, the founders understand the levers in growing their business. What do they need? What levers do they need to pull to grow that company? And then are they projecting realistic, reasonable uh, you know, numbers? And what are they based on? So if you're going to tell me that monthly revenue is going to increase by 20% every month, fine. What is that based on? Is that based on historical performance? If not, then is it, is it based on what, what kind of projection is it? Why is it? Why is that doable? Are you going to add salespeople to make that happen? Are you going to ramp up marketing? If so, you know, what are the amounts? It's got to mm -hmm. all correspond. Okay. And so don't pull numbers out of the air. Make sure there's a basis <laughs> for them. And then on the B2B companies, we see we like to see the sales pipeline with probability of closing for each deal mm. so that we can get a sense of how far along they are in that pipeline, what's coming up. I, we don't need to see the names of their prospects. That's not important. We don't ask for that kind of you know, information. But if they can produce a report uh, showing us their pipeline, then that's often uh, very helpful. Okay, very good. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, Forefrontvp.com slash contact. If you go there and you go to your contact page and you've, there's, some, there's some general questions here. Is that where, are they delivering their, their pitch deck in that? Or that's, that's, that's to get them to a spot where you'll connect, you'll connect with them and have them send the deck. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So that page, uh, one of the questions we ask on the contact form is, you know, are you post revenue or how much mm -hmm. revenue you're generating? Mm -hmm. And it's always incredible to me how, even though we have our criteria very clearly spelled out on our <laughs> website where it says post revenue, I, roughly half of the, uh, of the contacts that we get from that page say that they have zero current revenue. And I'm thinking, well, why are you wasting your time? Don't send it to us. Um, <laughs> so that's the first pass. That's a contact form. That's a, okay. If the company sounds interesting based on that little bit of information we asked for there, we'll request the deck. I and see. Then we'll, we'll take it from there. Um, okay. But companies, you know, a lot of times founders just email us directly, which is fine too. Tell, talk to me about founders and what you're looking for. Like, describe to me, like, okay, this is the perfect yeah. found, founder, soft skills, personality, style. Like, what, what's attractive for you guys? I mean, generally, we want someone who has a burning desire to, mm -hmm. to solve a problem. You know, again, I go back to what I said before, that they've experienced the problem probably firsthand. You know, and now they have like this burning desire to 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 solve it and help other people not have that problem anymore. That's number one. So hand in hand, that is you know, 
not required, but prefer preferred is some industry experience, relevant experience with okay. the problem, with the industry. Okay. Having having a team, as I said, that covers multiple multidisciplines, um, really being driven and and having conviction about their idea, but also being open-minded enough and being coachable enough that they can they can change and they can accept positive or or you know uh, some some constructive criticism. That so, right there is key. I want to just can I just call time out on that one right yes, there? That please. is so you know so many founders that I have talked to, especially if they created or invented something or you know something that's special it's got a patent or whatever you know they get this giant ego where they're like okay i'm the smartest person in the room yeah phil i want your money but don't tell me what to do and i'm not going to listen that that's a more common problem than than most people realize i think what, what, are, you, what are your thoughts <laughs> i agree with you i think you, and, and it's funny because as often as we see that we see the flip side just as often, which is a founder who does not have enough conviction mm. and flip-flops every time someone, an investor, an advisor, an employee tells him something, right. he flip-flops into a different idea. So that's why I say the balance is really mm. important. Having mm. enough mm. conviction, having that vision for what, what you're doing and what problem you're solving, but being open-minded enough to know that you're not necessarily the smartest person in the world and your, your idea may not be the best solution to the problem and being open enough to, to make changes and being coachable enough to, to adjust as circumstances require. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, COVID has been a huge test of that. Mm -hmm. So you've had all these founders who were focused on their business and all of a sudden COVID comes along and changes the landscape so dramatically and they've had to adjust their business model, many of them. And so this has been a test uh, for, for many founders to see if in fact they are at all flexible or, or not, or in how coachable they are, will they take input from, from others? How often do you have to call a CEO that you've invested in and you're like, you know, you give them half a million dollars and all of a sudden they spent, $50,000 to take the team to Cancun for a week and you call them up and you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, like what, 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 <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, fortunately that doesn't happen very often. I think because we're, we spend a lot of time with the founders before we invest. And okay. I think we get to know them pretty well before we, we write that check. And okay. so I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, for the most part, we weed those <laughs> types of people out and they, and they know that, you know, they have investors to answer to and they can't, uh, right. they, they, they can't do that kind of thing. Um, I'm not yeah. saying, uh, I'm not saying it, it might never happen, but uh, I hope that we get to know them well enough that uh, <laughs> we leave those out. How fast can you visit with two co-founders over happy hour and decide whether or not, yeah, these, these two, there's, yeah, no, they can't, they're not, they're already snapping at each other. Like, can you smell that in like what five? How long does it take you? Like three minutes? <laughs> yeah, you know the 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 no's are are much easier than the yeses, right? We can oftentimes we can very quickly disqualify companies, right? And then and then they go if they if they're not disqualified they go to the next level of of the funnel. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, if 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 there are co-founders who aren't vibing, you know, mm. they're not in sync, and they're not complementary in their in their skill sets. Right. It's uh, we can often detect that quickly, um, and sometimes it's a matter of the the co-founders butting heads during uh, uh, the call or a meeting. Both of them are trying to like be in control and. Even though they're both co-founders, typically one has got to be the CEO. One has got to be the lead person and the other has got to take a, a little bit of a back seat. Because if you have two CEO types, two people trying to lead the company at the same time who may have slightly different visions, that's going to cause trouble. Um, mm -hmm. So hopefully we can we can suss that out pretty quickly. I think. I think we we do a good job at that, but um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think you know better than me, you're the expert here, but if you had to measure it and run a bunch of uh, analysis on it, don't most companies fail because of people and co-founders and relationships and people not getting along? I mean, isn't that the most common reason most of the time something blows up with people? Well, I think that is a common reason, but I think it's also a symptom. I think the most common reason that companies fail is they run out of money. Right. Um, and, yeah. and so the reason why a lot of the founders or the founding team end up, you know, fighting or not getting along is because the company is not doing well. Mm. I mean, things, you know, people tend to get along a lot better when your company is crushing it, you know? <laughs> And uh, when sales are doing well and, and you're raising money and you, you, know, you have cash in the bank, yeah. people get along much better, I find. <laughs> uh, but when things are bad and, and, and growth is not happening or you can't raise that next round, uh, that's when the fighting starts. And, and, uh, and that's, that's a true test you know, to see if the founding team can, can manage to stay together during the tough times. And the reality is most companies are going to go through tough times, right? Most companies are going to hit speed bumps, hurdles. I mean, that shit's going to happen. And that, that is the test. I really believe that if the, if the team can keep it together and the founders can keep it together yeah. during hard times, uh, then the sky's the limit because you're right. Yeah. If, if you're raising cash and sales are up 50% every year, pff, any, I'm not saying anybody can do that, but it's a hell of a lot easier, right? You go yeah. through some tough, tough times and then, then the cream really rises to the top well, and you see, you see what you got. It's like that, exp it's that expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is completely mm. appropriate, right? So, yes. you know, and again, going back to like this whole COVID experience, what we found is that the companies in our portfolio who were uh, negatively impacted by COVID, but survived have, have been, are so much stronger now, mm -hmm. so much stronger, so much yes. more focused. The teams are so much better. They're, they they are they've come together as teams uh, mm -hmm. and really have like more of a unified vision. The companies are more focused on solving a problem uh, and more focused on their customers. So a lot of companies had to get much more in tune with their customers' demands and needs during COVID because they were you know they, they were hurting and they mm -hmm. were hurting for business. And in order to to make sure they survived, they had to focus on their customers more, which is what they should have been doing all along. So. If it doesn't kill you, it's gonna it's gonna make the company stronger. That's you know, I agree. And that's what we found. 
I think the same thing happened in in uh, 09 and 10, right? When they when when we came out of 08 and a lot of companies struggled, there was a, there was a, you know the crash, uh, the fall of 08. I personally was in a turnaround at that time as a, as a COO of a company, and so I felt the same way going into late 09 and then early 10. If you if you made it as a an executive team through the fall of 08 and came out of you, you came out of it stronger. I felt the same. Yeah, way. back then you're right because those teams had to get very scrappy, very resourceful because raising money was difficult. Yes, raising raising money was so difficult that they had to they had to bootstrap it a lot. They had to they had to be very resourceful, and that's great. Those are great traits, and hopefully they took that with them even after things improved and they remain scrappy that's important <laughs> i want to ask you a couple more questions here as we hit wrap up uh but uh i just had a a memory there i was i was promoted to uh uh the captain of a 40 million dollar company as it was going through uh the crash there and we were almost out of business the bank was crashing down i never forget i walked into the cfo's office and she goes you know she goes congratulations on your promotion really happy for you by the way, if we don't find a million dollars in about four weeks, we're going to miss payroll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great promotion, right? Yeah, and right. You were I'm... promoted to the hot seat. <laughs> yeah, I remember coming home telling my wife, holy shit, I, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Anyway, yeah, it makes you stronger. You, you get through stuff like that, it makes you stronger. Um, Did you get the money? Yeah, uh, we made it through. We What I did, well, to make a long story short there, is I sold a bunch of apparel for pennies on the dollar to TJ Maxx that we had in a warehouse to just get us get us through enough cash to make payroll. Longer story. See, that, be, you just met the definition of scrappy and resourceful. You thought yeah. about, you came up with a great way to, to solve the problem. Good for you. That's it. Yeah, it was good. It was a good time. Learned a lot. Let me, I want to ask you this as we get to wrap up here. You deal, you know, obviously you deal with a lot of founders, a lot of CEOs, you're tied to a lot of different companies. What are your thoughts on CEOs going on social media and blasting out their opinions on whatever the hot topic is of the month, right? Socially and just going out there and, you know, I'm, you know, screaming about this or that on a topic that, that might be a little sensitive. What, what are your thoughts on that? It, it feels like you're referring to Elon Musk. I don't know. <laughs> but um, my, uh, you know, look, I, everyone does what they want to do. I, I, if they want to do that, that's their thing. It, it's not it's not a style that um, it's not a trait of a CEO that that I would want to invest in. Um, I don't begrudge Elon Musk or anyone else for sharing their opinions. That's, that's their prerogative. That's fine. I prefer to invest in CEOs who are really focused on what they're doing, focused on, on their, on their company, their people, their product, improving their product, growing their company. If I had to pick one common trait among all the successful CEOs of companies we've invested in, it's that it's that focus that that drive they they don't have time to go post on twitter you know their their feelings about you know this the, the new infrastructure plan or whatever they don't have time for that unless it serves their business interest unless it's in the best interest of their business to do that um so to to just use the the bully pulpit or the platform that they have 
to share their personal views. Uh, that's not, again, that's not something that, that is consistent with what we look for. Yeah. Uh, I, um, I'd much yep. rather yeah. have someone who's nose to the grindstone focused on that business. I would just add to that, your summary there that, you know, if you're listening to this episode, you've never ran a business like running, starting and running a business from, from scratch is the hardest thing that I have ever done myself. And it's, it's very difficult being an employee is a hell of a lot easier. Trust me. <laughs> and so, I agree. you know, to Phil's point, like you just concentrate on running your business, just run your business. Cause I That's right. de deliver a good product and a good service on time at a fair price. Just do That's that. It. That's <laughs> it. That's it. Uh, two more, two more uh, little, little uh, bigger picture questions here. Future of remote work. Do you believe in the remote style do you like the remote style do you think everybody should go back to the office do you i know it depends i know it all depends a little bit on what the company but just in general how do you feel about it yeah in general i'm a fan of you know sort of remote work work from home i think it it it's a very good trend it's not for every company or every uh, employee uh and i think ultimately you know every company will find sort of its own way and maybe it's a hybrid but the reason I like it is it, it democratizes a lot of startups access to talent. Yes. It democratizes a lot of startups access to capital. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you, you know, the, we've all gotten used to working more on Zoom versus in person. That makes access to capital um, easier for a lot of companies who aren't, you know, in Silicon Valley, for example. Uh, if you have talent all over the world and companies are now more accepting of the, you know, remote uh, 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 work style, then then that's that's great too. So I think like it, I think it's a very good good trend. Um, but again, there are benefits to having a team uh, in person and the the camaraderie that you can foster having that team in person together and and some of the things you know just about the, the, that team spirit and, the, and that and that camaraderie that you can't emulate uh, online. So I think like a hybrid is is the best. Okay, very good. If you could call the young man coming out of Wharton and tell him anything based on all the stuff you've learned, what what would you say to him? Uh, I'd say start if you have a burning desire to start a company do it now it's mm. you know when you come out of college that's a great time to start mm. a company um it's it's what my my older son has done and uh um i i, I applaud him for that uh if you don't have a burning desire um to to start a company don't uh but maybe think about going to work at a startup so i think that starting a company or working at a startup is great experience for mm. many many areas you want to go into now look if you if you just are are passionate about being a cpa and that's all you want to do great go do great. that i'm not saying yeah. you have to work at a startup if you you know if that's what you want to do but uh i think that for a lot of careers 
startup experience is very, very helpful, um, either as an employee or, or as a founder yourself. So I, I would encourage recent graduates to, to consider that route, especially at this time of their lives where they don't have a whole lot of obligations, maybe aside from student debt, but they don't have a whole lot of um, other obligations. They may not be married. They may not have kids. Uh, you know, other other things, and uh, and they still believe that uh, they're the smartest people in the world. So you know, they have that uh, uh, they they have that bravado. So hopefully, mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a good time for them to to do that. One last question, but I want to add on to what you just said. As a recruiting firm, I'll just tell the listeners if you're listening to this episode. When I look at a profile of an executive or somebody that we're recruiting or thinking about placing, if they have big company, medium-sized company, and startup, all three, if they have that experience on their, their LinkedIn profile, that is always, for me as a recruiter, much more attractive than somebody that's only had a uh, big company. Because I, I, I just know if, if they've been through startup that they're a little more scrappy, a little more scrappy. Yeah. So. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree. And I would just, if I could, I would just add on that I'd much rather someone young start in a startup and then eventually move to yes. a larger company rather than the other way around. Agreed. But, uh, but I agree with you. Someone who has all that experience in, in different size entities, different size organizations is the best, the best kind of candidate. The reason it's better to do it first is because big company people that go into a startup Sometimes their head explodes and they can't take it. hundred <laughs> percent. That's right. They have a certain way, narrow way of thinking that they got at the big company and they can't break out of that. Yeah. Last question, Phil, you've been awesome. Thank you so much. Last question. If you could put your core purpose in life right now at this age, at this stage, if you could put your core purpose into a sentence, what is that? What does it sound like? From a professional standpoint, outside of you know family, agreed. Uh, from yes, professional standpoint, uh, um, I'm just loving helping uh, founders build their businesses. Um, I, I'm solely devoted to helping founders with you know funding and growing, scaling their businesses, and becoming super successful. It's so gratifying. It is so amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think about, I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, Grove Collaborative, and I think about my friendship with the CEO, Stu Landisberg. Uh, we invested in the first round for the company uh, six, seven years ago. Now they're a $2 billion, uh, you know, company. Cool. And, you know, when Stu first pitched us and, and you know, the company was tiny, and we made the decision to invest, you know, and in we started our friendship. And it's just been such a great experience, not only to be friends with him, but to watch him grow and watch the company explode in terms of uh, popularity and revenue and all those things. It's just been that that journey is is a is a great experience to do as a founder, but it's magnified so many times over when you can do it as an investor and have lots of companies in your portfolio where that happens. And so that's my purpose. That's my passion. And, and I just love doing it. Love it, Phil. Thank you so much for sharing. Really appreciate you being on the Rider Flex podcast. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's been a lot of fun.